Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to a very special edition of 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff, where we celebrate the life and times of the one and only mean Gene Okerlund. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm great, Conrad. Just uh, literally just pulled into uh, the house here in Wyoming after a weekend, a uh, fast and furious one down in Houston. Hanging with your boy, Bruce Pritchard. It was awesome. I'm glad you guys had fun, and uh, I guess I should give everybody a heads up before we get going today that Eric and I are going to be coming to see a St. Louis. Stay tuned to Twitter. We're going to have all the ticket details coming in the next week or so. Uh, the first place to find it is 83 weeks on Twitter. So if you haven't already, go give us a follow there. We'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming next week. Uh, but we felt like an audible was necessary this week just to celebrate the life and times of me and Gene Okerlund. Um, I gotta say, man, this is uh, news that obviously is inevitable. Eventually we all, it's our time. Uh, but I just saw mean Gene in November and you know, he was of clear and sound mind and you just never think when you see somebody, it's going to be the last time when was the last time you saw Gene. It's interesting. Bruce and I were talking about that, um, this weekend and the last time I saw Gene was I think in August, I went to an event and actually Bruce was there as well. Uh, we were both there with Pat Patterson was there and Larry, the X heading was there, Baron Vronorowski, a lot of the old timers from around, you know, the Midwest AWA era. Uh, but that was the last time I saw him. And I, I have to say, you know, as sad as it is when a friend in a, a peer and someone in, in my case, I grew up watching before I ever came to know him personally or professionally, you always hate to see people like Gene pass, but the one thing that I guess that I, I don't know, it makes me, I don't want to say better about it, but it, I guess it keeps me from being sad. Let's put it that way. Is that last time I saw Gene, he was having a blast. He was 75 years old, 76 years old, whatever he was. He was, he was hurting. You could tell physically it was hard for him to get around. Um, his hand, you know, I went to shake his hand when I saw him and his hand was swollen up very, very badly. I think it's a complication of some of the kidney issues he had. And you can just tell that physically, um, he was probably very uncomfortable to say the least, but he was having a blast. You know, he loved, he loved being around wrestling fans. He really, really did. He loved entertaining him, whether it was just two or three people sitting at the end of the bar or a room full of people or a locker room full of people. He just loved to be around wrestling fans and the wrestling business. And I, I will say he was having a blast that last day I saw him. Well, let's, uh, let's start from the beginning. Obviously you grew up, uh, as an AWA fan and, and mean gene from my lifetime was all about the WWF, but realistically he, he cut his teeth in the AWA, not all that differently than you. Apparently. Uh, the situation was he was working in radio and all of a sudden, uh, one of their announcers was out. They asked Gene to stand in and ta-da, he's in the wrestling business. Does that sound a little familiar to you? <laughs> it's so bizarre. I read, there was an article, you know, when Gene passed last week, there was a lot of, you know, n new information and, you know, past articles that were floating around on social media. And I came across a story that was written a while back in the Minneapolis Star and Tribune about Gene and how he got started in wrestling. And it's, I, I don't know if you read the same thing I did, but it's almost verbatim, you know, what she stated. You know, he was working at, over at WTCN Channel 11 where Vern used to uh, tape a show uh, in the studio there. 
And it sounds like kind of a similar situation. You know, Gene just happened to have a tie. I'm sure Vern, you know, I know Vern, or I knew Vern pretty well. I Vern would have immediately jumped all over Gene just because of his voice. Vern really loved announcers with that deep, rich, powerful kind of baritone, authoritative type of voice that Gene had. Um, so I'm, I'm, I can just see Vern now snatching Gene by the tie and dragging him into a TV studio, throwing him a mic and say, here, you're a wrestling announcer. <laughs> Do you remember anything about Gene when you were just watching as a fan at home on television? You know, there was, there's a lot of things I remember, but I I tried to recall last week when the news hit, I tried to recall what is my very first memory of Gene Okerlund. And ironically, it, it, it was a scene where they had been building up Hulk Hogan. It was like this big mystery, you know, coming to town, coming, you know, and that happened when, when big names would come into the territory either for the first time or maybe like an Andre the Giant, they only came around once a year, once every two years, whatever it was. And they would always make a big deal out of this next big attraction coming into the AWA. Well, there was a period of a couple of weeks or a month, I guess, where there was all this buildup about this, you know, phenom that was coming to the AWA. And not a lot of information, you know, kind of kept it a secret, kept everybody talking, wondering who it was. And the shot was single camera, right? Gene Oakland standing there with a stick in front of the AWA logo. And then enter, you know, this giant bicep from behind enters the screen, covers Gene's face. You can't even really see Gene. You can just hear him. And all the camera sees is this arm, you know, flexed in, in in a bicep curl. And the camera see in the back of the arm is the figure is moving closer and closer and closer to Gene. And the camera pulls back wide and it it reveals that it's Hulk Hogan. I, and ironically, that's my first memory of Gene. Wow. I know I, I, I'd seen a lot of them before, but that's like the one the one moment that I remember being the first. Yeah, it's cool that um, it involved Hulk Hogan because I think so many people really closely associate gene okerlund with either hulk hogan or rick flair is that the same for you that that's sort of the two that you think about when you think of gene definitely you know and 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 i have to say you know hulk first because again you know i didn't really know who rick flair was till i got to wcw so for me you know when i was impressionable and you know was at the peak of my wrestling fandom i guess in my right. early teens or mid teens hulk hogan was the one that i remembered with gene and those two were just they were they were synonymous you know you you almost can't imagine one without the other it's uh it's fun to talk about you know when you said when i was at the height of my fandom and at my most impressionable because that is sort of what i mean i think that's the reason people are listening to this show right now because so many of our listeners you know, when you were running WCW, that's what it was. So it's fun to hear what that was for you. I, um, I did a little research about Gene and I realized that, uh, when he came to WCW, well, I guess I should back up when you did your tryout with Vince, no chance you ran into Gene then. Gene was still living in Florida. He wouldn't have been in the studio that day, right? No, he wasn't. He wasn't at all. So your first time meeting Gene is probably in WCW. Is that right? Correct. So when he comes to WCW in 1993, I didn't know this, but he had the same agent as Jesse Ventura. Would that be one Barry Bloom? Correct. Mundo. That is correct. So when you first meet Gene, are you still an announcer or at that point, are you, do you have a little bit of stroke in the company? 
No, by that time I was the executive producer uh, because I would have hired Gene and I would have had to have a little bit of stroke to do that. So, so uh, I was already, I believe, executive producer. I don't think I was a vice president yet, but I was the executive producer. And I, I was the one that basically brought Gene in so through talk, Barry. Talk to me about how that happened. Like, you know, it, it is a bit shocking after nearly 10 years in the WWF that to even think about somebody like Gene being on another wrestling program. How did you hear that he might be available? And how did that all come to be? Well, I was pretty close with Barry at that time. And Barry knew, you know, I talked to Barry a lot. Barry had a pretty good idea where I was going and what my plans were and what I was trying to do. He knew that I wanted to upgrade, you know, the, the production values, of especially our syndicated product. Um, he knew how I felt about announcers. He knew I was looking to, to kind of refresh the announcer roster. So um, Barry made meeting Gene really easy. So when you meet with Gene, talk to me a little bit about um, what hit, what that conversation was, were there concerns about, are you going to make me move to Atlanta? Because when we talked about Gene Okerlund with Bruce, he was pretty adamant. He didn't want to leave Florida. He certainly didn't want to live in Stanford and I don't blame him. I know a lot of people would, uh, pitch a fit about living in Stanford, whether it's Jim Cornette or whoever, you know, even Bruce eventually opted to No, I really need to live, you know, where I'm from. Nobody wants to uproot their family and go to another part of the country, not dumping on Connecticut, just saying everybody wants to live where they are. Was that a concern or what were his concerns or was it just all about the dates and the money? Um, well, it was all of the above. It was about the dates. It was about the money. Um, we did talk about his schedule and Gene was, Gene was pretty, by this time he was kind of ready to wind it down a little bit. You know, he wasn't looking to work, you know, five or six days a week and be on the road full time. He wasn't looking for any kind of office position or management position in addition to announcing. So there was never any need for him uh, or, or need for us to even talk about him moving to Atlanta. It didn't didn't make any sense. Uh, most of the stuff that Gene was doing, he was doing for us, you know, at television tapings and pay-per-views and things. So. Um, there was no need for him to move to Atlanta. That was never an issue, but he was concerned about dates. Like I said, he was, you know, he was, he was ready to, he was 55 or 60 years old when he got to WCW. So he was ready to start winding it down. What do you remember about your first meeting with Gene? You know, the, because we had so many mutual friends and mutual history and a unique relationship with Vern, Gene was pretty close with Vern. You know, I know there was it was a tumultuous time and there was, you know, I don't know what the politics were when Gene actually left Vern. We never, never really had that conversation. But um, I don't know. Gene, Gene was easy for me to talk to because, like I said, we just had so much in common. Right. You know, we could we could talk about Vern. We could talk about hunting. We could talk about Fisher. We could talk about Nick Bockwell. We could talk about Larry the Axe. We could talk Ray Stevens. Ed, you know, Wahoo McTann. We could talk about because we had so many similar connections, even though we weren't friends. And the one common denominator was, you know, our relationship with Vern. So you strike a deal with Gene. I assume that you make this deal the very first time y'all are together, or is that all work through Barry Bloom? Or how does the contract process work? Oh, the con I mean, really, I, when somebody has an agent or an attorney that they want representing them, I, I don't negotiate with the talent. If the, once, once they say, here's my attorney or here's my agent, then all of the business dealings, at least the way I do it, th then goes directly through the attorneys or, or, or agents. 
And actually, if, if they have an attorney, then I don't. Then I take myself completely out of it, and I won't even talk to their attorney. I have my attorney talk to their attorney. So I'm pretty sure um, because it went very smoothly with Gene. I think Gene probably had a pretty good idea what he was looking for as as a result of that. So did Barry Bloom, his his agent. I knew what I could afford. I knew what we were willing to pay him. And it was a fairly easy deal to get done. It was not a complicated deal. One of the things that's become a bit legendary, and we've touched on it before briefly, but I'd love to have you sort of recap it and, and just revisit it for a minute since we're talking about Gene, is the hotline. Because the hotline became synonymous with Gene to the point that They even spoofed it on WWF television and called him scheme gene. Uh, and uh, allegedly he would run a little fast and loose with that sometimes just to stir up some interest and get the telephone to ring. And most importantly, the cash register to ring. And allegedly he helped grow that quite a bit. And the rumor and innuendo is that you sort of helped carve that off and make that his baby to where he was able to participate. What can you share with us about that? Yeah, I mean, really, Gene was passionate about the idea. He, he believed that we could generate significant revenue, and you you got to you know go back to 1993, early 1994. Um, every bit of revenue was important. You know, we were again trying to stop the bleeding in '93. By '94, we were trying to, you know, find a way to make that first dollar a profit, and along the way, every nickel mattered. You know, in the in the hotline generated significant revenue um, once it got up and running, and we worked out the bugs. And yeah, when I mean, it was Gene came to me with the idea, he wanted to manage it, he wanted to produce it, he wanted to do the work. So we carved out. I think he got thirty or thirty five percent. We got the balance of the revenue that came in. And that was his baby. It was fun money for me. I mean, it was money that we, we it was money that wasn't previously in our, in our books. So I was picking up change that we did we weren't currently making or, or previously making he makes his debut on november 6 1993 on an edition of wcw saturday night and um apparently they enforced some sort of non-compete clause is that right where he wasn't able to do anything for a couple of months is that the way you remember it i do not remember that so let's talk a little bit about um Gene's relationship with you, because he's gone on record as saying that he liked you and he found you refreshing and that you said something to him that made him feel good. Like, uh, we need you here and we want you here. And that was a bit of a, an ego boost for him because, you know, he had had this long-term relationship that just ended. Did you have any sort of conversations with him about the way things ended with Vince or the WWF or how that maybe affected him one way or another? You know, I was thinking about that today and on the way home and that's one of the things I think that made me respect Gene so much is that he didn't have a, a negative thing to say about WWF or Vince or anybody in WWF at that time. You know, unlike many people who would come over from the, the WWF and they would – look, it's human nature. I don't think less of people necessarily. Um, it, it's kind of common, but – so often people would come from the WWF or people who had previously been in the WWF and, you know, they would make comments that they think you want to hear because of the competition. And you'd hear a lot of negative things. You would hear a lot of ridiculous stories. And I, I always kind of let it go in one ear and out the other because I understood what it was and why people were doing it. But Gene was different than that. Gene, Gene thought the world of Kevin Dunn. In fact, Gene and I probably spent 
more time talking for the first year or two that he was with us about production um, than we did anything else. Gene, you know, Gene came from the advertising world, so he understood the business of the television slash wrestling business. He looked at it as a business, which is different than a lot of people who, who don't really understand what goes on in the business side of the equation. They only understand what goes on inside of a ring or inside of an arena. And, and I'm not knocking that, but Gene, Gene was one of those guys that had experience on both sides of that equation. But what Gene was most, yeah, he was almost obnoxious about it. He was, he was relentless in a, and in a good way was the production values. And I, I think Gene probably had more influence on me than just about anybody else that came over from WWF early on. Because I, I knew intuitively that we needed to upgrade our production values, but I didn't see the extent to which we needed to until I really started spending a lot of time with Gene. And he would point out a lot of little details. And we talk about ways to make shots look better and ways to make arenas look better. And, you know, just Gene had an amazing eye for little details. And that's really what television is. It's a it's the sum of a lot of little details and he, he he really was impressed with Kevin Dunn and, and everybody at WWF and didn't have a bad word to say about anybody. When he debuts, he debuts with two other former WWF talents, Tony Schiavone, who was up there for a whole year. And of course, Jesse Ventura really made a name for himself doing commentary there in the WWF. And now they're both here being stick men for WCW. And Jesse announces that he's got a bit of a surprise for Tony and it's going to be a reunion and he introduces Gene and they're at center stage and it's a huge pop for Gene. Were you surprised at how well Gene was received as not really an in-ring talent, but someone that was really our TV dad for a lot of us? I know I wasn't surprised at all. I would have been surprised if it would have been any other way. You know, and, and Gene, it's a really interesting thing about Gene is, you know, the w, WCW audience back then, you know, 93, 94, they were still it was still very much a a former NWA kind of audience right you know they they grew up watching wrestling on TBS and Gene was an outsider you know Gene what did Gene, Gene didn't come from the NWA he didn't come through you know the the the, the south at all he 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 was a WWF guy in in most everybody's mind and you would think coming into WCW you know that would get kind of an adverse reaction but it didn't quite the opposite because gene was so likable i mean he was like switzerland you know he's the one guy that could be up there he could be the face of wwf come down to wcw walk into center stage and get a big pop because he, he was everybody loved him yeah and, and that was true in real life too i mean not just on television uh one of the things i've always been fascinated by is the way you guys built the starcade 1993 saga because originally the plan we've talked about this before it was supposed to be Sid versus Vader. The whole stabbing thing happens with Arn. It's in Charlotte, so you call an audible. And instead, you build the story about the aging former world champion in the twilight of his career up against this unstoppable beast of a champion who hasn't been beaten, hasn't even really looked vulnerable. He's dominated everybody. Uh, and you're showing highlights of him, you know, breaking Joe Thurman's back and just destroying people. And meanwhile, you're telling this sob story of sorts where it's like can this old man possibly do it and you even get footage of gene uh interviewing and visiting with rick as he kisses his family goodbye 
And then they jump in the limo and they're talking about how his family's worried and how Rick's worried. Really, really great stuff. And a lot of people in wrestling still point to that today and say, man, that was some of the best storytelling ever. And they really hang their hat on the fact that it wasn't, uh, for lack of a better word, overproduced. Looking for a great Mother's Day or Father's Day gift idea? I was, and I found it at Paint Your Life. With Paint Your Life, you'll get a hand-painted portrait created to fit almost any budget, and it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You see, Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a -a one-of-a-kind, beautiful, hand-painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium. You can even customize the frame. And you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping to get this special offer. Just text the word WEEKS to 87204. That's WEEKS to 87204. Text WEEKS to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast. Part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Talk to us about that scene and how you just had faith and confidence in those two guys to get that done. Because even now, it's an awesome thing to go back and watch. No, it is. And I, I think I saw it last about four or five months ago. Uh, somebody actually sent me that clip. And that's one of the things I, I did notice it about it is the way it was produced. It looked believable. It felt believable. And we've talked about this before. Anytime in my experience, but I think anybody that's ever worked with Rick probably feels the same. In my experience working with Rick, the closer you can get to his core, his emotional core, something that he's sensitive about, the better he is. And you know, Rick, even in 93 and 94, he wasn't worried about his age, but you know, he was, he was getting older, you know, when, when you're in the business, when you're in a business that's, that is populated primarily with 20 year olds and 30 years old, 30 year olds, by the time you're knocking on 45, 48 years old, you're starting to be pretty self-aware. Right. <laughs> and, and Rick was like that. And it was so believable to Rick. And again, because it was his home and it was in Charlotte and you surround him with his family. I mean, you know, Rick better than I do at this point, but working with him professionally, like I said, if you could get somewhere close to his emotional core, you don't have to script him. You don't really have to point him in too many different directions. He know Rick would know what the story is. He, he knows what his role in that story is. And Gene was exactly the same way. Gene, that's the other thing. You know, I talked about this on Patreon, and I don't mean to go all over the place, but I'm going to anyway. Gene was so unique because he could in, – in one minute, he could be the ultimate straight man. You know, he could, he could, he could set you up to be as funny as you could possibly be, and, and he, he was so great at being a straight man. He was also a clown. He was a comedian. 
he was a really quick-witted guy and so fast on his feet. And, you know, we talk about improv and ad-lib and all that. I mean, Gene was on – he was the best when it came to improv. And and it's because of the way he came up. You know, I know how he came up. He came up the same way I did in the AWA. And you're, you're learning on the job. And you're learning from people like Vern Gagne, who I, who I think was, was a master when it came to teaching people how to do interviews and, and helping characters find themselves, you know, in, in a stand-up interview. Um, he worked, Vern worked really hard at that. And Gene took to it. But a lot of the stuff that Gene did early in AWA, I guarantee you, those guys didn't have scripts. I know they didn't. They would have looked at you like you were nuts if you even suggested somebody bring a script or a notepad in to do promos. So as a result of that, Gene was forced to learn how to be fast on his feet and work with these guys and have fun with them without making fun of them because that's the other key. You know, so many, you know, I was thinking about this. I was talking to Hulk about this. We're, I don't think we're ever going to see another Gene Oakland right. ever because the, the talent and nothing against anybody that's out there doing it now. I, I'm not I'm not being critical at all, but the environment and the process and the protocols that they're working under now are so much different that you don't get a chance to learn how to improv. Right. And, and, and you never find that, you know, one in a million, you know, personality that's going to be really quick-witted and funny. But most importantly, know how to get the talent over. You know, you see people that are inexperienced go out and the first time that, you know, they're interviewing a wrestler and they're trying to be as smart or try to be as tough or try to be whatever. They're competing in, a, in their own way. They're competing with the talent they're interviewing and they don't realize their job is to make that talent shine. And that's what Gene was so good at. He could make just like, we, you know, you've probably heard this a million times about Rick. You know, everybody loved to work with Rick because Rick could make anybody look good. Right. Like Rick made me look good. Well, made me look marginal. Yeah. But for me, marginal was pretty freaking awesome. But better than you expected. <laughs> better than others expected. I mean, Absolutely. Yeah. But that was all Rick. That has zip to do with me. That was all Rick. And Gene was the same way when it came to doing, you know, promos. Gene could make an average guy look good, a good guy look great, and a great guy look phenomenal. And that's why people, that's another reason why everybody loved Gene. So you mentioned him a minute ago, uh, Hulk Hogan, obviously the name that most people probably, so not, you know, put them together. I mean, it's peanut butter and jelly, all the, all, not all, but most of the video clips that I saw in the, the last few days sort of celebrating Gene involved Hulk Hogan one way or another. When you talk to Hulk about Gene this week, what did he have to say? I think, I think when the news hit him, it hit him pretty hard. Uh, he had just gotten back from Miami and Jennifer Dent were down there for New Year's Eve and he had just gotten back and was out uh, up late, got home late and early in the morning is when he got the phone call and it, it hit him pretty hard. I know I tried to reach him in the morning and I couldn't get a hold of him till later on that afternoon or early evening east coast time and by the time i got him he was i could tell he was he was pretty sad but he and i we talked about it and we both kind of came to the same conclusion the guy just loved life right and and he lived it really really hard and well and and it's hard to feel too bad about a guy that's lived his entire life and was surrounded with friends and loved to go out there 
you know, he loved going up to, to, to WWE. He loved going up to Stanford and seeing Kevin Dunn and Chris Chambers and some of the boys in production, you know, that, that he's known for so long. Um, he just loved it. And the fact that he loved life so much and he was happy right up until the very end. Now, I don't know what his personal life was like at home. I only saw him when, you know, we were at events. But, man, talk about a guy filled with joy. That was that was Gene. And I think, yeah, that's what Terry and I both talked about is, you know, can't feel too bad about it. Guy lived a great life. The other guy, of course, that everybody has clips of uh, this week with Gene is, is Ric Flair. And I think most people remember him with Rick because of the way Rick would start interviews whenever Gene was holding the stick for him. Mean, by God, Gene, woo, or some variation. But in the typical over-the-top nature boy delivery, uh, how much fun did these two guys have working together? You know, it's funny when 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 it came time for Rick and, and Gene to, to shoot something. Usually, all the people there was people standing around, some of the talent standing around, or the production people that weren't really busy at a particular moment, and it would draw a crowd because it was entertaining as hell. And they had so much fun that everybody else had fun watching it. And I think that's again one of the things that translates to the home viewer. You know, when you can have that much fun at your job and and performing and still getting business done chances are the audience is going to dig it so yeah they had a blast we all did watching it one of the things that rick has talked a lot about even back on our podcast together woo nation and the rick flair show we had the honor of having mean gene as our guest uh, not once but two times and they often talked about the fun they had after the show at the bar with what gene called a couple of clear ones any good uh after the show drinking stories with uh, gene you can share you know i didn't I, i'd hang out with gene pretty regularly you know after nitro um you know for 20 minutes or so not 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 all evening because gene was a social butterfly sure he just loved socializing at the bar um and so i never really hung hung out and drank hard with gene or bobby or anything like that um the only thing you know that comes to my mind and this is just it just makes me chuckle is Gene was such a flirt. I mean, and he had game. Gene Okerlund had game. No matter where we were, you know, what town, however big or small, you know, after Nitro, everybody get together at the TV hotel, head down to the bar most often. And Gene would always have three or four young ladies just totally captivated, you know, laughing away and giggling away. And he totally would charm them. And it never failed. I mean, I think Mean Gene Oakland probably attracted more more women uh, after Nitro than probably any of the talent combined. <laughs> and to be clear, because I've seen Gene in action on some of this, he was just, as he said, keeping the, the skills sharp. He wasn't trying to close the deal. He's just uh, wanting to make sure a salesman can still sell. And uh, Yeah, absolutely. He was good at it. <laughs> absolutely, he was. Talk to us about Bobby Heenan. You mentioned Bobby there, and I think a lot of people, when they think about me and Gene, they can't help but think about Bobby Heenan. Bobby comes in not too terribly long after Gene. He makes his debut on January 27th, 1994. It's a clash of the champions. And very fittingly, the show opened with Gene welcoming us to the show. And then in his earpiece, he gets told something and introduces Bobby the Brain. They had such a great time in the WWF, and now they're here in WCW. That had to be something Gene was looking forward to. He was. He he thought obviously thought the world of Bobby, and and, and who who didn't or who wouldn't. Uh, but yeah, he was very excited to to get back together with Bobby again. 
They just had such nat- natural chemistry. And you talk, and I know you, you know, you've been around Gene. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to see Bobby before he got real sick or no. hang around Bobby before he got real sick. But when, you know, when Bobby was at the top of his game and Gene was as well, those two together, I swear to God, they could have, they, they could have had a show in Las Vegas, you know, seven nights a week if they wanted to. They I, were just so funny together. You know, I, I get asked all the time because I have at this point too many damn podcasts, but I get asked all the time, Hey, if there was one, dream podcast who would it be and it's always either bobby heenan or dusty Rhodes. but can you imagine a bobby heenan mean gene podcast what that might be like the stories especially with bobby you know if if podcasts would have been around you know when bobby was available and interested in doing them the stories that you could have heard from him i mean just this weekend you know i was around tito santana and you know, the, the demolition, you know, Axe and Smash and um, Bob Orton and a bunch of bunch of older guys. And you sit around and you talk and you hear these stories. But you listen to a guy like, you know, Bobby Heenan and the stories he could have told. It would have been amazing. The good old days, man. Uh, that's what I enjoy about this show is, is we get a chance to relive some of those memories. And one of them that I think is probably most iconic with me and Gene is bash at the beach 96. And we've talked about that show here before. Of course, it's the legendary heel turn of Hulk Hogan. One of the biggest moments of his career and, and arguably in wrestling. No, without question, one of the biggest moments in wrestling and the man right in the middle holding the stick. Well, who else mean Gene Okerlund, um, that scene wouldn't have been the same with anybody else in there, would it? Nope. Talk, nope. What do you remember about that scene and Gene's importance to it? Because, I mean, he really is selling it. I mean, we didn't see Gene talk a lot in those. He usually just set it up and, you know, this Friday night, you know, you're going to be facing Tito Santana. But Gene took it to another level and said something like, you know, excuse me, what in the world are you thinking? I've been with you for so many years. For you to join up with these men makes me sick. Uh, you've got to be kidding me. Uh, I mean, just really selling, you know, and even to the point where he points out the garbage in the ring, which you've talked about, gave you a Woodrow before he says, look at all this crap in the ring. That's what's in the future for you. If you hang around with these two or something like that, Gene made that. I mean, obviously the, the turn was the big critical thing, but without Gene really driving the point home, I don't know that it would have been nearly as effective. I I don't know who could have done it. I mean, I know I couldn't have. It, it, it would it wouldn't have been the same at all. I don't think Shivani could have, right? Uh, because Shivani didn't have that history with Hulk. Shivani wouldn't have been, or and shouldn't have been, anything other than a little angry and disappointed. But Gene, because he was so close with Hulk, and people associated them, you know, from from the beginning of what most people, you know recognizes the beginning of Hulk Hogan's career. So for Gene to have been impacted emotionally the way he was, the way he, he set that up, absolutely, to your point, sold the hell out of that. Now, here's what here's the best part of that. We didn't rehearse it. <laughs> Man, that's just the magic of mean Gene, is it not? Just right off the top of the head. He, he knew his business. Right. He, you didn't have to tell him. You know, you, that was, that's, 
you know, and I, sometimes I, I listen to myself. I'll listen to the show back, and I, and I get mad at myself because sometimes I don't articulate what I'm really trying to say as well as I wish I, I could or I, I do. But with Gene, that, that was the magic. The magic is putting people in a situation and getting a real reaction out of them, as real as possible. We all know what we're doing here for a living. But to to, to figure out a way around that and to get – natural, real reactions that people at home feel. That's the magic. And yeah. Gene was so good at that. He was so good at it. He just had a, a great instinct for it. Let's talk a little bit about um, a few months later, because I think this sort of gets lost in the shuffle. In like September of 96, so not too terribly long after the Hogan turn, uh, his contract expires. And he's off TV for a while. And Meltzer would even write that he said goodbye to a lot of people, um, in the office early that week. And by Thursday, a memo was circulated to all WCW employees that Oakland was no longer with the company, uh, but he's not gone too terribly long. Eventually, uh, he works out another deal and manages to come back, but not before he at least has a conversation with Vince McMahon. What's the thinking after, you know, he's done such a great job that we're not going to renew your contract at the end of 96. It was just a negotiation. You know, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes they're easy. Sometimes they're hard by that time, you know, in 96, everybody started smelling blood. Sure. Um, everybody wanted to get rich. Everyone, everybody felt that they deserved more and there was a big, you know, run, uh, on, on, on WCW because everybody knew we were rocking. Gene was no different. He's not gone too terribly long. He winds up coming back on November 11th. And according to Meltzer, uh, the rumor and innuendo is that he was offered a pretty good contract to only work five dates a month, which would be uh, the nitros and one pay-per-view and doesn't have any office or hotline duties at that point. Is that the way you remember it? Mm, well, he never had any office duties. So yeah, if we would have phased the hotline out, then yeah, we would have sounds right. I mean, we, he, that that was our schedule. You know, we had four TVs and a pay-per-view. That's all we needed Gene for. So that would that sounds right. Let's talk about uh, some not-so-awesome stuff. Some of this you were here for. Some of it you weren't. Uh, but one of the things that stuck out to me is he joined the Millionaire's Club and feuded with Pamela Paulshock. Who booked this shit? Oh, I was Mr. Russo. Well, let's just move along. But I was, but I was there. So I, look, I got to, I got to take, I could have probably shit can that and I didn't. So I can't put it all on him. I was there, but you weren't there. I mean, I'm not, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Let me start it over. Were you there when he teamed with buff Bagwell to wrestle Canyon and Mark Madden on thunder or the next no. week where Mark Madden wrestled mean Gene and then pulled uh, his cup out and rubbed it in Mark Madden's face. No. Thank God. Uh, yeah. I can't believe those are real <laughs> things, but in, in consecutive thunders, uh, he teams with Bagwell to take on Canyon and Mark Madden. Madden goes to low blow Gene. Uh, Gene reveals it didn't hurt. And he pulls out a cup to reveal why rubs it Madden's face. Bagwell gives him the blockbuster. That's the end. The next week, Gene has his first ever singles match. It's against Mark Madden in a street fight, which is pretty freaking unbelievable, but it happened. And, uh, yeah. So let's talk about, you know, the, uh, 
the good times that you've had with Gene and, and what you're going to remember and buy and what you think Gene's legacy is going to be? Mm, what do I think his legacy is going to be? I, well, the great thing is because of the WWE network, um, kids are going to be watching Mean Gene Oakland for the, for decades and decades and decades to come. I don't think, as I said earlier, we're ever going to see anybody come close to being as entertaining, as credible, uh, and as consistent as Gene Oakland was. Well, we're never going to see that again. And when I think about what am I going to remember most, I'm, I'm just going to remember his laugh because he laughed a lot. He was always cutting a joke. You know, he was always, he, he had one liners for everything. And for whatever reason, when I close my eyes and I think about Gene Oakland, I think about him sitting at the end of the bar with a couple of young ladies, just having the time of his life. That to me, that's, that's how I choose to remember Gene. Well, I think most of us choose to remember him holding the microphone for some of our favorite wrestlers. And of course there's uh, a couple of fun blooper videos that are out there. Uh, outtakes and whatnot, and even an interview in WCW that you may remember, uh, where you guys let him sort of go after, um, the natural born thrillers and he's telling them to blow it out their ass. And he showed a little personality, which is the gene that if you met him in real life, that's who you really met. He was with WCW until it closed. He got a contract renewal, not too terribly long before, but was still able to uh, pop up at WrestleMania 17 and do commentary for the gimmick battle Royal. And, uh, then of course he worked on and off with the WWE for hosting their confidential and lots of 24, seven things and on-demand classics and popped up for some skits here and there, but he was almost like the, uh, an ambassador or like the, uh, the elder statesman of the WWE. Was he not? He was, you know, and it's funny when you think about, you know, people talk about branding and, you know, how to, how to get your brand across and, and all that branding means to everybody. But Gene Oakland, I think, was in many ways the face of WWF. You know, when before Vince McMahon kind of acknowledged that he owned the company and, you know, while he was still an announcer um, and nobody really knew what his his real role within WWF was, there was one guy that, you know, when you thought of WWF, other than the talent, you know, Hulk Hogan or, you know, Ric Flair or, Ultimate Warrior, whoever you thought of as a talent, but the one consistent, you know, face and voice that you heard so much from uh, was Gene Oakland. So I think in in many ways he was the unofficial brand ambassador for WWF. Without question, um, let's run through some questions that we've gotten on Twitter. Uh, lots of people have wanted to know stories from you about Mean Gene. Do you know of anybody that he ever had an issue with backstage? I know, uh, Bruce Pritchard said that he didn't really get along with the ultimate warrior on the WCW side of things. Do you remember Mean Gene ever having a particular issue with anybody one way or another? Because I've never heard not one soul say anything bad about Gene. No, no, I don't recall him ever having, you know, now, now listen, Gene, Gene could have a temper, you know, Gene was a little bit of a perfectionist. He, he was patient. Um, he was tolerant to a point, but when it came to his business, um, he, he, he was a bit of a perfectionist. And if you didn't come ready to work and you, you were just half-assing it or you weren't prepared or, uh, you weren't putting anything into it, he'd get hot. 
you know, if production wasn't right, he'd get hot. He liked things to be on time. When they weren't on time, he could get hot. Now, it wouldn't last long. And half the time, you know, when he was blistering you, it was kind of funny the way he did it. So you just got to kind of roll with it and, and chuckle along with it. But he he did have a temper. But like I said, I never recall him having, an, a, you know, a personal issue with, with anybody. Tony Schiavone has said that occasionally they would have some flare-ups because Tony was supposed to be producing. And uh, he would say that maybe Turner didn't have quite the structure that the WWE had, and that's not what Gene was accustomed to. And as a result, uh, Gene could be difficult at different times. Is that sort of what you're referring to? Yeah, it is. And, and Tony's right about that. You know, Gene came to WCW. No, Gene knew what he was getting into. There was no, you know, there was no illusion. You know, we didn't, we didn't try to pretend we were something that we weren't, you know, but it, I can only imagine, you know, how dramatic of a, of a cultural shift that would have had to have been for Gene to come from WWF because WWF, even back in the nineties, you know, it was a machine, right? I mean, production second to none and extremely well organized and everybody there knew their jobs and did their jobs very, very well. You didn't have that at Turner. We've talked about this before about, you know, where, where Turner production was and the evolution of WCW from the time I took it over to the time I left. Um, we, we eventually grew to, to become fairly sophisticated, but never as well organized and structured as the WWF. And that would drive Gene a little batshit from time to time. I'd hear about it a lot. Well, I mean, that's really no surprise, I guess. Um, well, we do want to talk a little bit about, you know, some of the promos that really stick out to you. You know, the two that really resonated with me are Starcade 93 with flair. And then of course the whole bash at the beach deal with Hulk Hogan. And from a comedy purpose, the, the natural born thrillers thing, anything stick out to you about his work in WCW that you want to mention? No, I think those are good examples of some of the best stuff that, that Gene has done, um, or did, I should say with WCW. Uh, and again, it's his, it was his instinct. It was his natural ability and his talent. It was him knowing his job and his role and how to tell a story. That was the other thing about Gene. He was a great storyteller. It was all these little, these little facets of what made him such a, the crown jewel of, of wrestling announcers. Um, but he, he was a great storyteller. Um, but yeah, those, those two, those two promos I think he picked were, were excellent representations of some of his best work. The one that I get the kick out of, cause I did, I've, I have seen a lot of them and it didn't happen in WCW and there were a lot of them in the WWF too. I mean, if you're going to do like a best of me, Gene Okerlund, I'm sure somebody's going to do it eventually. It's going to be like an eight episode series because there's just so much good stuff, but some of the ones that I get the biggest kick out of, and there's one that's been floating around on social media where Gene Okerlund's um, trying to interview Mad Dog Vashon, who is building a coffin because he's in a casket match or something coming up. This is, you know, in the AWA. And I was just a fan then. I didn't work there at the time, obviously. But I remember when I saw that, it was just hilarious. And, I, and, and if you go back and you see that on social media, just watch, you know, G's reactions are priceless. One of the things that, uh, we talked about on Tony Schiavone's podcast is the famous promo where Ric Flair and his feud with you stripped down to his boxers 
uh, and, you know, threw money and threw his shoes and handcuffed himself to the ring and I'm not leaving. And as he's doing all of this and Rick says he didn't tell Gene that he was going to do any of this, but he did say he ran it past you and your only caveat was, uh, let's be careful with how many clothes you take off. Uh, <laughs> but, but apparently he didn't tell Gene he was going to do this and Gene just off the cup said, there goes the laundry, uh, which is pretty funny. Um, what, what do you remember about that particular promo with Ric Flair? Just stripping down right in the middle of nitro again you know i i mean same thing is true you know if you're going to come up with a rick flair highlight video you, you better have eight episodes to do it with um there's so many of them but it's that chemistry they brought out the best of each other and and rick rick was always best when he was nuts and that was like nutty rick flair in his prime in my opinion that was pretty crazy shit there's a lot of fun stuff that's floated around. That's like outtakes of Gene, where he was trying to crack the boys up because when they had to do pre-tapes way back in the day, in the eighties, when they're doing localized promos where they had to do one after another for all these markets, it would take hours upon hours to do. So me and Gene did his best just to entertain himself and the other guys there. And as a result, some really funny stuff came out of his mouth that wasn't really suitable for air. Any fun outtakes like that you remember from WCW or maybe a good one-liner that Gene used that you still remember? No, he had no God. There was just so many of them. There's so many one-liners. Um, not one of them stands out to be honest with you. I just, I couldn't pick one. Eric, you were running through some of the different times that when Gene first came down, he was very helpful with production, which wasn't really his job. He's just supposed to be on our talent, but. He was trying to help a brother out and say, what about this? What about that? Is there any one particular moment or lesson or mean gene pro tip that you can share with us that you recall? Not so much in, in, in terms of a tip or a nugget of knowledge, but again, you know, I think Gene's exposure, again, you just, you know, follow his career. He started out in AWA, which is really basic, you know, rudimentary television, uh, single camera studio shoot type stuff. And that's where Gene cut his teeth. And then he goes up to WWF and they are a very, very sophisticated, even more than very sophisticated production company. And Gene learned a lot. Gene was a sponge. When he went to work, he not only became really good friends with, with um, Kevin, Kevin Dunn, uh, he studied the product and by the time he got to WCW, he, like I said, he probably knew more about production and the changes that we needed to make than probably anybody in WCW at that time. Yeah. I mean, that's not a surprise, I guess, if you, you know, hung out as long as he did, uh, in the studio with the WWF, uh, do you remember anything about Gene's son that played hockey? Because a lot of people have popped up this week with little details about his son playing in the NHL. Or even the fact that Mean Gene had an album back in the day. I didn't know that Gene was a crooner before he passed away. Did he? Did he rap? Did no. he do a rap song? No. Well, he may have for you. You may have made him do some sort of rap. No, I wouldn't have made him do that. Well, but uh, he did have like when he was a young man uh, an album that he released, and and you can actually listen to some of it on some different streaming services, and it's even on YouTube. Uh, and I didn't even know that, but it's really weird because you know you and I. have made jokes about the fact there are certain people in wrestling who've looked the same age forever. Like for instance, 
JJ Dillon has looked 40 for 50 years and Arn Anderson has looked 40 since he was born. Well, for whatever reason, Gene Okerlund has looked <laughs> roughly the same age forever. So to see a young Gene on the cover of an album really blew me away. Uh, but those are two little nuggets that I didn't know before Gene passed away about his son in the NHL and then him as a, uh, a bit of a singer. Did you ever get to uh, see or hear about the good old days, either in hockey or singing? I did not. And I'm going to have to get a listen to that record. The, uh, the old clear ones, the way Gene would describe his drinks and, and Bruce would say it was a martini with 30 olives. Uh, I think, uh, Corey Graves said it was, uh, vodka soda, splash of cranberry, something like that. Um, do you remember in Okerland or what, what mean Jing's drink of choice was when you guys were hanging? I, I, I would go with Corey on that one. I, I do recall vodka, soda, splash of cranberry. The good old days, man. Hey, I got one for you. Do you know who gave mean Jean the nickname mean Jean? I believe it was Jesse Ventura, but I could be wrong. God, I thought I could stump you on something. Yeah, What's I, up with you? I think the story was they're doing a promo and, uh, Jesse Ventura says he's been hanging out with Tom Petty and the heartbreakers. Uh, and then he asked Gene, do you know who Tom Petty is? And Gene being the comedian, he is, says, I think he's a famous race car driver referencing Richard Petty. And he says, boy, that's mean Gene. And then ta-da, he's mean Gene. Huh? Well, what about- I didn't hear that part of it, but that's cool. Chat now I know something more. What about mean Gene burger? We've had lots of people who want to know about the mean Gene burger. You ever rock a mean Gene burger? You know, I did. I did about 20 years ago. I was up in Northern Minnesota with my brother, duck hunting and my son. And we we were in this little town. I don't know. I can't remember the name of the town. It was, couldn't have been more than 4,000 people in this town in Northern Minnesota. And right there on a street corner is a mean gene burger. It's a hamburger joint. And and this was after I left WCW. So of course I had to go in and get a mean gene burger. It was great. Of course you do. I know I'm going to sleep a little better tonight because I feel like we've paid tribute to one of the best that ever did it. Mean Gene Okerlund. The best there is the best. Oh no, that was Bret Hart's better not take that one. He'll be whining about it. No, I agree with you. Rush. Rest in peace, Mean Gene. We're going to miss you. Next week, we're back to our regular scheduled programming, but we wanted to make sure we paid, we paid tribute to uh, somebody who was very important to all of our lives and certainly in the world of professional wrestling, the one and only Mean Gene Okerlund. We'll see you next week right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together... It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.